0: Today is Wednesday, June the 28th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Website owners' traffic plummeted after Facebook algorithm change, With no communication from the company... Publishers relying on Facebook traffic are at the mercy of the algorithm. An apparent change to Facebook's algorithm in May caused a dramatic drop in traffic to news and media websites, according to a growing list of publishers and data from EchoBox, a social media management company. Companies have little choice but to rely on social media's biggest gatekeeper. Publishers say they deserve transparency. But as with similar change in the past, there have been no communication from Meta. Sources say the shift started in February and worsened in the months following. There's been a significant downward trend. Facebook clicks have been in decline for about a year, but that drop accelerated rapidly in May of 2023, according to EchoBox, which collects data from more than 2,000 publishers worldwide. Across EchoBox clients, the share of traffic coming from Facebook fell about 50% from summer of last year. Facebook has made no secret about its intention to deprioritize news on its platform and give greater precedence to video content, which by nature results in less click-through traffic. It can be extremely challenging for publishers to be at the mercy of third-party platforms, with performance and revenue severely impacted by by algorithmic changes over which they have no control. Facebook is no stranger to opaque changes with major ramifications for the companies that makes its most popular content. Most significant is Facebook's infamous 2015 pivot to video. When the company touted face metrics about how popular video content was on the platform and encouraged publishers make more videos, That prompted a media industry-wide shift with heavy investments in producing video content and corresponding layoffs in other departments that, in reality, users weren't watching. More recently, publishers' number tanked after the 2020 presidential election when Facebook made a short live change to deprioritize news content on an increasingly divisive platform. Meta isn't just deciding whether or not users see more news. It's deciding what kind of news shows up in users' feeds. Over the past three or four months, anything that's controversial or related to substantive policy news gets suppressed. But if it's news about something relatively simple and happy, the algorithm amplifies it. The digital media industry's dependence on Facebook, once well known as a firehouse of traffic is well-documented and one-sided. In May, Meta threatened to block news links altogether on Facebook and Instagram in California in response to a bill moving through the state legislature that would force tech platforms, Google as well as Meta, to pay publishers for news content. Meta platforms could be suppressing news contents in more subtle ways. Whistleblowers claim Meta blocked not only news but also the pages for hospitals and fire services in Australia in 2021 in response to a similar proposed law. Meta denied that allegation, saying the block pages were an unintentional flub. Meta is a private company that is free to make changes and doesn't owe anyone traffic or revenue. Although website owners are relying on Facebook traffic, they themselves are just products at no cost sold by Meta or Facebook. Camera Review site DP Review avoids shutdown by Amazon. Amazon layoffs were supposed to shut down the 25-year-old site back in April. Back in March, the editor-in-chief of the 25-year-old Amazon-owned Camera Review site, dpreview.com, announced that the site would be closing in April. The site was the casualty of a round of layoffs at Amazon that will affect a total of about 27,000 employees this year. DP Review was meant to stop publishing new pieces on April 10th and to be available in read-only mode for an undetermined period of time after that. But then, something odd happened. The site simply kept publishing at a fairly regular clip throughout the entire month of April, and continuing until now. A no update update from EIC Scott Everett published in mid-May merely acknowledged that pieces were still going up and that there was nothing to share, which wasn't much to go on, but also didn't make a sound as though the site was imminent danger of disappearing. Last week, DP Review finally had something to share. DP Review Com and its current core editorial tech and business teams were acquired by Gear Patrol, an independently-owned consumer technology site founded by Eric Yang in 2007. The deal closed June the 20th. The site will continue to operate as it was before, with all editorial coverage and site features remaining the same and all historical content accessible. The availability of the historical content was a major concern for many readers. High-end cameras having a long shelf life, and DP Review was an important content repository for people trying to navigate the used camera market. Everett did note that DP Review user accounts had been transferred to Gear Patrol and would be subject to Gear Patrol Terms of Service going forward. While DP Review's current team will continue with the site, Former employees who left after the site closure was announced don't appear to have been asked to come back. Former site editor Gannon Burgett criticized Amazon on Twitter for the uncertainty it created for DP Review's current and former employees and freelancers. Burgett wrote, You figure this sort of stuff out before shutting down an entire division of your company. Not in hindsight after weeks of backlash and leaving freelancers to scramble for new gigs, as they're told they won't have a job. I'm extremely glad for everyone who did stick around and still has a job, but I know that for most of them, it wasn't clear what was happening for at least the first two or three months, which is incredibly unfair to employees who help build the very resource you're about to turn around and sell. FCC proposed rule requiring TV providers to give the all-in price. FCC proposed a new rule that would require cable and satellite TV providers to give consumers the all-in price for the service they're offering up front. The proposed rule would force companies like Comcast, Charter Spectrum, and DirecTV to publish more accurate prices. Too often, these companies hide additional junk fees on customer bills disguised as broadcast TV or regional sports fees that in reality pay for no additional services. These fees really add up. According to one report, they increase customer bills by nearly 25% of the price of service. FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenwassel first floated pricing transparency rules for the TV services offered by cable and satellite companies in March. That effort took a step forward last Tuesday when the Commission approved a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, that's NPRM, that seeks public comment on rules that would force video providers to offer accurate prices in advertising. Misleading broadcast TV and regional sports fees who choose a video service based on an advertised monthly price, may be surprised by unexpected fees related to the cost of video programming that raise the amount of the bill significantly. The cable and satellite TV companies practice of listing broadcast TV and regional sports network fees separately from the advertised price can be potentially misleading and interpreted as a government-imposed tax or fee. Instead of a company-imposed service fee increase, and make it hard for customers to compare prices across providers. Comments will be accepted for 60 days after the NPRM is published in the Federal Register. The FCC said its proposal would require cable operators and direct broadcast satellite providers to clearly and prominently display the total cost of video programming service. The FCC is also seeking comment on whether it has the authority to impose similar requirements on other types of video providers. But Rosenworcel reportedly said in a congressional hearing that the FCC's authority under U.S. law doesn't extend to streaming services. The FCC already voted to require broadband providers to display labels with exact prices and other information about Internet service plans. Comcast complained to the FCC that listing all of its monthly broadband fees is too hard and that it wants the commission to change the broadband label rules before they go into effect. A TV pricing transparency rule would force Comcast to be more honest in its advertised prices for video service as well. Comcast broadcast TV and regional sports network fees combined can add about $40 to a customer's monthly TV bill. Consumers deserve to know exactly what they're paying for when they sign up for a cable or direct broadcast satellite subscription, Warsaw said last Tuesday. No one likes surprises on their bill. The advertised price for a service should be the price you pay when your bill arrives. Currently, TV providers hide a bunch of junk fees that are separate from the top-line service price. Increases in programming costs shouldn't be described as a tax, fee, or surcharge, she said. The all-in pricing format that's being proposed would allow consumers to make informed choices by letting them more easily do comparison shop among competing providers and evaluate programming costs against alternative programming providers, including streaming services. Cable television is fading into history. For more than a quarter century, we've been hearing prediction about the demise of cable, and with it, cable news. A Pew Research article from 2000 showed the trends began more than 30 years ago when consumption of broadcast and local news began to decline and users began to get more news and entertainment online. These trends have only increased since to the extent that the long decline in cable news may finally be reaching its end. Cable news was not necessarily a terrible product. It was an obsolete one on an obsolete platform. While it didn't predict that the death of cable was imminent, it was clear it might be time to start looking for hospice care. Eventually, probably sometime in the next 5 to 10 years, cable TV is going to stop, for all intents and purposes, disappear. Fewer people watching cable news doesn't just mean less ad revenue, which accounted for $2.6 billion in revenue collectively for the cable giants last year. It also means less revenue from cable providers who provide cable news networks the majority of their revenue, that's $4 billion, through licensing fees. The day could soon come when an exodus of cable television subscribers leave cable operators unable to afford the hefty license fees that those news programmers now command. For consumers, content creators, and society generally, however, the collapse of cable news is nothing to be feared. By its very nature, capitalism is an evolutionary process, one that is never stagnant or stationary. Capitalism incessantly revolutionizes the economic structure from within, a natural impulse to conserve obsolescence industry. This was generally a futile and self-defeating task. Companies like Netflix are often credited with disrupting the movie industry. Online streaming has disrupted the entire media landscape, and it's not just Fortune 500 companies like Netflix, Apple, Google, and Amazon doing the disrupting. Spotify, Substack, Twitter, Rumble, and others have given content creators new platforms to reach hundreds of millions of people. This media evolution is a great deal for consumers. Instead of dropping $200 a month for a ridiculous number of channels, viewers can purchase subscriptions as they see fit. Amazon customers get streaming thrown in for free with their Prime subscription. Fans of commentary can watch countless other commentators for free on YouTube or Rumble. Consumers have virtually endless options, and each of us is able to select from the menu based on our individual taste and pocketbooks. Content creators, meanwhile, get to pursue their entrepreneurial passion and get paid by bringing their message to audiences. Nobody's likely to be more concerned over our brave new world of media freedom than the state, which historically has attempted to control and restrict the free flow of information to suit its own needs. More Choices and Voices is a healthy thing for a democratic society. That's exactly what the market has provided. Researchers created a simple app that turns your smartphone screen into an accurate thermometer. Phone doesn't require any additional hardware or upgrades to a mobile device. Just your forehead. Device makers have struggled to incorporate temperature sensors into smartphones and smartwatches to turn them into medically accurate body thermometers. But researchers at the University of Washington claim they've come up with a way to turn an off-the-shelf smartphone into exactly that with nothing but a new app. They're calling the app Feverphone. Although smart wearables like the Apple Watch Series 8 an Apple Watch Ultra can measure a user's body temperature through newly added sensors, it's a feature that Apple insists is not yet accurate enough to be used for medical diagnosis or treatment. As many of us discovered during the wilder days of the COVID-19 pandemic, non-contact digital thermometers aren't terribly expensive, but they can quickly sell out when demand for them skyrockets. As a readily available alternative, researchers at the University of Washington turned to smartphones. One key difference? Their solution does not need any added attachments or hardware upgrades. Smartphones already rely on components called thermistors to measure the temperature of the device's internals, including the battery, in order to activate safety precautions and to ensure they don't overheat. Thermistors, which are also used in medical-grade thermometers, can't directly measure a user's body temperature while inside a smartphone, but they can be used to track the amount of heat energy that has been transferred between the user and the mobile device they're making contact with. Using the Fever phone app sounds easy enough, but it requires users to hold their device at its corner and press its touch screen against their forehead for 90 seconds. This was deemed the ideal amount of time for enough body heat to be transferred to the device. And since the forehead interaction is detected by the touch screen, it allows the device and the app to know when the measurement is being deliberately made. During a clinical trial at the University of Washington's School of Medicine's Emergency Department, the app was tested by 37 participants, which included 16 with a mild fever, and the results were compared against readings from an oral thermometer. Feverphone was able to predict a user's core body temperature with an average error of about 0.41 degrees Fahrenheit or 0.23 degrees Celsius, which is on par with the accuracy of home-use thermometers, including non-contact options. The researchers are currently working to improve the app's accuracy by expanding the number of smartphone models that were used to train its machine learning model. As initially, just three different devices were used. Feverphone may never be approved as a medical grade thermometer, but it sounds like it will be accurate enough to give users a better idea when they might actually be sick and should be taking appropriate measures to protect themselves and others. Earlier this year, PBS and LocalNow announced a deal to bring local PBS stations to the free streaming service, LocalNow, which, by the way, you can access on the PC or on your Mac or on your Linux system at www.localnow.com. In the spring, PBS stations, LocalNow, and PBS started to roll out PBS affiliates. Now it seems this rollout of PBS stations are now live in most markets, across the United States on the local Now app. PBS was one of the last major TV networks to join the cord-cutting revolution and offer its content live and online. In the past, if you cut the cord, you could get a collection of on-demand content through the PBS app or watch PBS for free with an antenna. But if you wanted to stream the channel live, you were out of luck until a few years ago. Now there are more options than ever before. A few years ago, DirecTV Stream and YouTube TV added live feeds of PBS, but you had to pay for these services. Now you don't need to pay or use the PBS app, as LocalNow has reached a deal to stream PBS for free in 225 U.S. markets. Not all markets are live yet on the LocalNow app, but PBS stations are starting to go live. If your market is, is not let yet by the end of 2023, you should find your local PBS on Local now. The addition of local PBS stations is a major achievement for Local Now and cements their position as the leader of free streaming local news and entertainment in America, said the founder and chairman and CEO of Allen Media Group, the parent company of Local Now. Viewers of all ages know and love PBS, and soon they will be able to stream this amazing content for free at any time. PBS stations will also be coming to Hulu with live TV later this year, but no date has yet been announced for when that will happen. With this move, PBS is becoming far more cord-cutting friendly, and hopefully soon, PBS will be on even more streaming services. I am able to receive nearly 60 TV channels over the air with a legal size sheet antenna, but I need to reorient the placement of the antenna to get the different channels. With streaming on the internet, I can receive even more channels without switching around equipment for different channels. You can receive localnow.com on your iPhone or Android smartphone. I'm able to receive on localnow.com all the basic network channels and most of the news network channels. All of the movies, TV shows, streaming channels, and, well, everything on localnow is completely free. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin
1: Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we address some of the issues that you might be dealing with in your life that are related to work, or maybe it's things in at work that are related to just life itself. So, I received two questions that are very related to each other. The answer is the same The answer is not an answer that either Morris or Chuck is going to want to hear. But these are cold, hard reality questions, or the answers are cold, hard reality. So let's go into the questions. So Morris asked, I can't access a website that I need for work because of a firewall or other security settings. So he can't get onto whatever website he's he wants to get on uh, to because there's something popping up. There's something in the way that's not allowing him through. Chuck, his question very similar. I can't install the software that I need for my work on my computer. Both of these, it used to be that we would talk about something called Shadow IT. And this is where people, individuals, would decide for themselves what was best for computing and what they needed on their computers and so forth. Over the years, that's kind of shifted. I'm going to take a slight detour because more people know about this particular item that I'm going to talk about Then they know about the rest of it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it from one perspective, then I'll go into the other perspective. There is this age-old myth that exists. And this myth exists that human resources is there for you. It's there for the little guy, it's there for the employee, and it's not. The core responsibility for HR for all employees is to the company. It's to the owner, it's to the stockholders, it's to the people writing the checks. It is not to each other. I know that that comes as a shocker and it comes as as kind of a rough point for a lot of people, but it's true. It's it's real. When you go to step out the door to new jobs, you are going to find out that human resources, is going to exist to give you your last paycheck and shuffle you off out the door as quickly as they can. Information technology, it exists only for the people who are cutting the checks. It's the exact same thing. They're not there for you. They're there for the company. Now, if information technology is there for the company, They're there for the company in a number of different respects. They're there for the company to protect the company from hackers, from malware, from all of these different things that should not be on the computers. So Chuck, not being able to install that software, that's a protection of the company. Now, they're also there to ensure that the company is maintaining efficiency. A lot of the different IT efforts we do revolve around efficiency. So in Morris's case, he can't access a website that he needs for work. Are you sure you really need that website for work? Are you trying to do an end run around? Are you trying to get to someplace you shouldn't be on the Internet? I had a coworker years ago. Uh, and th- actually this was before I w- uh, i was actually even an employee there. I was a contractor, and this guy was going to all-, all kinds of places on the Internet except for where he was supposed to be. I won't get into the whole nitty-gritty of the details. Let's just say it was a big human resources thing, and he should have been sent packing, but that's another story altogether. He was locked down. He was locked down on a number of different levels to the point at one point before he left the company, he was locked down so he could only open up three different applications on his computer. Maybe it was four and he could only go to five different w- websites, which we had set up so he could only access those websites. That was all to keep him out of trouble. He was in IT jail. He was in information technology prison and he hated the warden. Yeah, that was me. He hated that. He came to me many times it's your fault. I'm I can't get to this website. I'm like no. I wasn't the one who found out you went to that website. It was a human resources complaint. I merely solved it per direction by the owner. Every IT department has their own set of acceptable use policies. These policies, extend through websites applications usage of those applications usage of those websites and so much more they have to do with passwords they have to do with this that or the other thing where you can go on the network where you can't go everything these policies exist to protect against malware to protect against crashed systems, to protect against unauthorized resource uh, release rather of information resource uh, uh, so uh, look it, it, it's problems constantly. There are all kinds of different issues that we get into. the uh, the idea that I'm having to go on out and I'm having to spend time supporting something that's not work related. Like what, you want XYZ software loaded on your system? That's not work-related. Look, if you feel you've got a problem, you can reach out to your IT department. You can talk to them. And if you think you've got a legitimate need, they will talk with you. They will work, work it out with you. And they may solve this for you. They may say no. They may say, look at the policies. But that's just the way it goes. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank.
0: Thank you, Benjamin. Who ultimately owns content generated by ChatGPT? There are ChatGPT issues related to accuracy, truthfulness, and inherent bias of the materials that AI platforms generate. We need to also understand its legal ramifications. There's no issue around personal use of ChatGPT as a conversational assistant, but when it comes to applying AI-generated content intended for wider distribution, say marketing materials or white papers or even articles, the legalities get a little, well, murky. When it comes to intellectual property, the model for ChatGPT is trained on a corpus of created works and it is still unclear what the legal precedent may be for reuse of this content if it was derived from the intellectual property of others. To get a better sense of where things stand with the use of ChatGPT for distributed content on where the law stands, such as copyright or intellectual property, here are some insight and thoughts. ChatGPT tends not to include citations or attributions to the original sources and IP used or synthesized. Is this an issue? From an intellectual property perspective, if the source material is not specifically quoted, there would be no requirement to include citations. If ideas are used but not copied, the use would not implicate copyright or other protected IP. That said, from a research standpoint, citation or attribution would be helpful for identifying biases and credibility, just like any other citation to authority. For a work to enjoy copyright protection under current U.S. law, the work must be the result of original and creative authorship by a human. Yep, I repeat that, human author. The U.S. Copyright Office will not register work that was created by an autonomous artificial intelligence tool. So far, the courts have been hostile to the notion of non-humans claiming authorship or inventorship, and in both cases, thereby Ownership of the IP. As a result of the human authorship standard, under U.S. current law, an AI-created work is likely either 1. a public domain work immediately upon creation and without a copyright owner capable of asserting rights or 2. a derivative work of the materials the AI tool was exposed to during training. Who owns the rights, then, in such a derivative would likely to be dependent on various issues, including where the data set for training the AI tool originated, who, if anyone, owns the training data set or its individual components, and the level of similarity between any particular work in the training set and the AI work. A compelling argument may be made that AI is simply a tool and that the human who is directing the AI should be able to claim ownership of the output. For instance, a graphic artist can claim artwork made through the use of drawing software. However, in the case of ChatGPT, the operator's control of the output is limited, and perhaps a stronger argument could be made that the output is controlled more by the creators of ChatGPT software than the operator who initiates an input. What about when ChatGPT generates exact same passages for someone else, The concept of independent creation may preclude two parties whose queries generated the same work from being able to enforce rights against each other. Specifically, a successful copyright infringement claims requires proof of copying, independent creation is a complete defense, and under this hypothetical, neither party copied the other's work, so no infringement claim is likely to succeed. However, if the content created is damaging, who gets the blame? An exact copy of protected work could create potential liability, which raises another question. Who is liable? The creator of the AI, such as ChatGPT, or the user who posed the query? If generated text is used in an article or paper, even partially, should ChatGPT be treated and cited as a source in itself? Correctly citing AI generated content is okay. A citation to the source as ChatGPT would be appropriate. Despite big layoffs, many of the tech workers who lost their jobs are finding new opportunities relatively quickly in a still tight job market. Nearly 80% of laid off tech workers found new employment within three months of beginning their job search, according to a November 2022 Zip Recruiter survey. The past several years have been chaotic for big tech companies, from staffing crisis to management changes. This has opened up hiring opportunities for small and mid-sized tech companies looking to recruit top talent who might have otherwise gone to larger firms. There is a lot of active hiring in a small the mid-cap tech companies, all across the United States. These companies didn't overhire as much as their larger competitors did throughout the pandemic when the tech sector experienced rapid growth, so they haven't had to resort to hiring freezes or layoffs. There has been an overwhelming demand for software engineers, full-stack developers, data scientists, cloud architects, and other similar highly specialized roles at these companies. Three years ago, everyone wanted to work at the big brand names companies like Google or Amazon. Now they're realizing that these larger companies aren't as stable as they thought. Tech workers are changing their objectives around the job search. They no longer prioritizing a big paycheck or name recognition. They much rather work for a company that really cares about their employees and isn't going to lay off hundreds of people soon. Tech talent is still desperately needed in many industries. While some tech analysts have warned that the recent layoffs is a sign for Silicon Valley that the worst has yet to come, workplace experts say these fears are overblown. In the past 12 months, businesses spent an average of $11.7 million on IT staff, and 78% of managers say, they're planning to increase their budget and headcount toward IT hiring in 2023 to be able to meet increasing digital demands, according to a new report from MuseSoft, which surveyed 1,050 business leaders across the globe. While the pace and prevalence of digital transformation have been steadily increasing over the past decade, the COVID-19 pandemic poured gasoline on traditional business models of organization and accelerated this trend, as well as the need for technical people to keep up with this transformation. Businesses have desperately needed tech professionals for some time. Now that more tech workers are out of a job or growing disillusion with Silicon Valley giants, employers in non-tech industries are able to hire tech workers. The promise of big tech might have lost its luster for some who are looking for more stable, greener pastures as technology becomes more and more ingrained in our society. These jobs will become increasingly in demand, no matter what shape the economy is in. ChatGPT can't do everything. 90% of laid-off H-1B visa holders were able to find new work. The massive layoffs in the tech sector since the start of the year sent tens of thousands of H-1B visa holders on a race against the clock to find new work within 60 days or face deportation. The good news is most did find work. Lavellio Labs gathers publicly available workforce data. They found that over 90% of laid-off H-1B visa holders were able to secure new work that met the program's rigid criteria. In fact, compared to native workers, immigrants found work 10 days faster, largely because with so much at stake, they were more likely to move for a new job. Visa holders are only permitted to take roles directly related to their specialty training. Rovelio found that while 67% of non-immigrant workers change roles after being laid off, Only 49% of Visa holders did the same. With big tech tightening its belt so drastically, how were so many able to find roles in their specialty? The answer has to do with market demand. Laid-off tech workers on H-1B Visa found as one door closed, many others were opening. The H-1B Visa program participants ebb and flow in lockstep with market demand. According to Reveleo Labs data, 78% 78% of Fortune 500 companies are currently sitting with critical roles going unfilled for six months or more, which wouldn't be the case if the H-1B visa program afforded holders more flexibility and if there was greater cooperation between public and private actors to fulfill qualified talent where it's most needed. Even as layoffs continue, our labor shortages aren't going anywhere. Rovellio Labs found that over 43.4% of companies had more than 50 technical roles that they were unable to fill in the past year, which make up 68.8% of approved H-1B visa holders in 2021. One aspect of the H-1B visa process is the 65000 cap on how many visas can be awarded each year, plus an additional 20000 for holders of U.S. graduate degrees, which has been the same since the inception of the program over 20 years ago in 2023 alone meant that over 483,000 applicants were turned away despite the millions of jobs sitting open this isn't the first year demand has outstripped this unlimited check check this limited supply between 2008 and 2020 the cap was maxed out within the first 5 business days of opening the application on several occasions. Last year, the number of visas registrations climbed by 56.8%. To make a dent in the millions of rows sitting vacant, we need flexible, market-sensitive visa policies to determine the flow of foreign labor, not arbitrary and outdated federal limitations. This should check check. This should shape the way we look at today's headlines about recent layoffs in Silicon Valley. They have left thousands of employees hard on the H-1B visa with limited options and only 60 days to find new opportunities. The disruption to people's lives is unimaginable. If we can't find better ways to stabilize and retain foreign workers, it's likely many of those laid-off workers will return to their home countries or countries with more immigrant-friendly policies like Canada, New Zealand, or Switzerland, just to name a few that outrank the United States. The loss of talent will ripple through our communities and America's position in the global economy. We've rightly made strides for correct hiring practices that discriminate against people because of their race, religion, or gender, but the way our current visa system is set up, we allow geography to wrongly disqualify even the most talented applicants. If markets and merit, rather than the lottery, have the final say on what labor we welcome and wear, We not only have far fewer job vacancies, but also the best and brightest from around the world, contributing to our workforce and our communities. The tangled web of U.S. immigration policy is many reforms away from serving our best economic interests. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston.
1: Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, last week we were talking about uh, we were talking about uh, tech for outside. Specifically, we were talking about the, 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 uh, this grill, the smart grill. But uh, I asked you, I tasked you. I said, "Well, what about cooking inside What, well, what, what tech do you a, okay. have for that?
2: Multifunction, my friend. Multifunction. Yes, yes. From Kosori, two different products. One is a stainless steel. 13 quart, that's bigger than usual, air fryer oven combo. Okay. It's about twice the capacity of most air fryers. It has above and below cooking layers, 11 cooking functions. Air fry, toast, roast, broil, bake, and there's some more. It's big enough to bake an eight-inch pizza. It has rotisserie okay. in there, so you can cook a whole four-pound chicken. Okay. The mode's very the control over their interior heating sources, which can reach 450 degrees Fahrenheit, and mm-hmm, it yeah. also controls the convection fan speed. I tried to toast a slice of bread. Right? You would think this thing does everything, right? The yeah, yeah, yeah. Toast is one of the fun. It was overdone on the top and barely done on the bottom. So I called support. Yeah. And they said, "Well, I should have flipped it halfway through."
1: Oh wow! Well. I, I, you know, I, I you know, I I have a toaster and. Uh, it's, it's a toaster oven. It's a, it's a very nice toaster oven. I've never had to flip the bread halfway through.
2: I know. Well, sometimes you, uh, you have compromises, right? Sure. Uh, this comes with 50 proven recipes, uh, for a lot of your cooking chores, even reheating or keeping warm, you may find it a fast growing source of reasons to use a Kosori 13-quart air fryer oven okay. instead of that microwave. It's about $140. But Kosori also has a six-quart pressure cooker that isn't just a pressure cooker. Okay. Very multifunction. It pressure cooks. It cooks rice, steam, sterilizes, slow cooks, sautés, ferments, and sous vide cooking. Oh, sous vide Okay, outs, nice. Specific call-outs for oatmeal, porridge, stew, broth— Bean, grain, meat, or poultry. And you can customize settings for temperature and cooking time. It has a cooking progress bar graph, a lot of safety features, like a steam release that faces away from you, and Mm -hmm. a spin stopper. The accessories are dishwasher safe. This may look like run-of-a-mill slow cooker, but don't be confused. With most of those, no matter what recipe and instructions you follow, everything comes out like meat soup. This thing can... (laughs) Make things that those don't, like fajitas and omelets and pork chops and salmon. The Gosori six-quart pressure cooker is about 90 bucks. But there is something that came out of considering both of those, and that is foil.
1: Tin foils, paper wraps. Oh. I, I use those for making hats. Uh, tin foil, yes. Well, they uh, uh, the radio uh, the t- waves from
2: Mars uh, away from uh, your uh, yeah, brain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have a gas grill, an oven, a microwave, a superheated steam oven, a multi-mode convection air fryer, a multi-mode pressure cooker, and I'm Mm -hmm. probably forgetting something. Yeah. So I asked the Reynolds rep guys to tell me which of their products I can use in which cookers. Okay. They they got me samples of a whole bunch of different variations and sent some info. I learned that microwaved frozen pancakes – Everybody okay. does those, right? Okay. Come out better when I wrap them in parchment paper, which helps retain moisture in the food. Okay. Parchment paper, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Get a roll. Outside the microwave, parchment paper lets meat and veggies brown and crisp while still retaining moist flavors. You can use that in ovens, no hotter than 425. You got a flame going on. It's
1: very <laughs> that whole cool paper thing comes into play there, yeah. <laughs>
2: It's very cool for making cookies but not don't use it on the grill or in open flames don't use it in toaster ovens not under the broiler and not in halogen light ovens. Okay. Now Reynolds also makes butcher paper which is great for smoking meat at temperatures that never hit 300. Okay. it's also good in the microwave but never in toaster ovens or under broiler and halogen, you know, that kind of thing. Reynolds nonstick aluminum foil is good to 650 degrees. That's the nonstick. Good for most grills, pizza ovens. They recommend preheating the grill or oven then placing the foil in with the duller nonstick side up, placing food onto the foil.
1: Oh, okay. So the dull side is nonstick. Uh, so the right. shiny side is normal foil. Nor- okay.
2: All right. Right. Now, the pure normal foil, it, it can go to 650 degrees. And okay. uh, That's the melting point of aluminum. Uh, I'm sorry. Melting point of aluminum is 1,200 Fahrenheit. So with the nonstick, you can go to 600 and some. You don't want to go much above five. And 1,200 will melt. uh, Not that your oven will hit it.
1: Yeah. uh, (laughs) Your Um, high-end wood-fired pizza ovens do hit like 800 and 900. But – yeah, they're they're flash uh, flash yeah. burning those pizzas.
2: Right. Well, for for anything really hot, the only thing I try is their heavy duty foil. And for slow cookers, they have slow cooker liners. Oh, do all they? Told, okay. You know, all told, uh, <laughs> I talked to them, and it's better to know the limits than to offer curses and be foiled again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I so that last item though that that was something I was not aware of the slow cooker liner.
2: I wasn't either, but you know that's why I make these phone calls.
1: Yeah, you know it, it, I, I appreciate. You know, it, there's a lot of research that you that you put into a lot of these different things. It's not like you just show up and go, "Oh, hey, I got something in," and and all of that. It's it's the background. You start thinking about everything that could go wrong, and uh, sometimes I, it does.
2: My mama didn't raise no press release parrots. <laughs>
1: very true that's the voice of marty winston this is
0: benjamin rockwell back to you hank thank you benjamin and thank you marty public service announcements computer club meetings in the new york new jersey connecticut tri-state region log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting id Tech Ed Connect Thursday, July the sixth. Meeting time is seven p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Kings Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, July the eleventh. Meeting time is seven p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at two twenty Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call three four seven two seven eight. 7320 The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, July the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, July 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. And just to let everyone know, I'm aware that there is an issue with the website of the Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, and they're working on recovering and restoring it to operation. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN live streaming on the internet. Podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.